As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Swing into Seaside Golf in Ocean City, Maryland. Play like a pro at 17 championship courses designed by golf legends like Jack Nicholas and Arthur Hills. Tee off on sweeping vistas at Eagles Landing. Savor the coastal views of Lighthouse Sound. Or see why Ocean City Golf Club is considered one of the Mid-Atlantic's finest fairways. Whether you're sneaking in a quick round on a family vacation or going all in on a golf getaway, fun is always in play at Ocean City, Maryland. Plan your trip at ococean.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On the pod today, the entire Democratic agenda is on the line this week as the House prepares to vote on President Biden's infrastructure and build back better plans. Donald Trump and his allies keep laying the groundwork to steal the 2024 election despite an embarrassment in Arizona. And Washington Post journalist Jason Rezaian talks to Tommy about 544 Days, a brand new podcast launching tomorrow. That follows the true story of when Jason was held hostage in Iran and accused of being an American spy. You can catch it on Spotify tomorrow. It's free. It's on Spotify. Can I give you guys a little tip? Please. Please. It's gripping. It's like it's like a better Argo. That's it's like not a, a tip. That's an opinion. It's no. It's a tip. It's a tip about <laughs> hey, your if listening. If you're listening to, just remember this. That's a, it'll help you listen. It's a really good podcast. I've heard all of the episodes. Jason is hilarious. It's. It's like a better argument. The hilarious true story of being in prison. <laughs> well, in that's the weird part, right? Like you wouldn't think a story about being wrongfully imprisoned for nearly two years would be funny, but it's very, very funny. Jason's funny. His wife, Anthony Bourdain, makes an appearance. Like it's an incredible show. I'm super excited to listen. Uh, one more quick note before we begin. September is National Voter Registration Month, and Vote Save America is working to raise $1.5 million through our No Off Years Fund. Uh, donations will go to help voter registration efforts in Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Wisconsin. These are all places where reaching new voters will especially help make the difference in our ability to win in 22, 24, and beyond. Uh, we know that $1.5 million is a big goal. But the sooner we get new voters registered, the sooner organizers can start building relationships and expanding their work to reach every last voter. It's all about the friends you made along the way for these organizers. <laughs> you know, this is the work you do now so that before the election, you know, we don't start hearing a bunch of stories. about oh, Republicans did better in voter registration. Where were we? Blah, blah. This is the time. That's how we'll sound this then. This is the time. That's how we always sound. I think it's funny that it's National Voter Registration Month. Like, Okay. I mean, I love a fake holiday. Wake you up when uh, September ends, John? Is that what you're saying? Uh, go, 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 go. Hurry. We like, we like news hooks here in the business. <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, to chip in, head to votesaveamerica.com slash donate to learn more. All right, let's get to the news. Nancy Pelosi has announced that the vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill will take place on Thursday. And since infrastructure is unlikely to pass unless House progressives feel confident that the president's Build Back Better plan will also pass, Democrats in Congress have just a few days to make sure that every last policy detail is agreed on by just about every single member of their caucuses, from AOC to Josh Gottheimer to Bernie Sanders to Joe Manchin, everyone in between. Uh, right now, there are still serious disagreements within the party over taxes, healthcare, climate, and a whole bunch of other issues. 
And once they figure all that out, they also have to pass a bill that will fund the federal government before it's forced to shut down on Friday. Pelosi summed up the challenge in her characteristically understated way, telling Democrats, quote, the next few days will be a time of intensity. <laughs> okay. Great. Yeah. Great way to say she had it. A, she had a knife to Gottheimer's neck at the, mo- at the point, which I think is lost <laughs> in the quote. <laughs> oh. On a scale of one to ten, the political press has dialed up the stakes of this week to about a thousand. All the cliches are make or break, do or die, uh, grave consequences if it doesn't pass. How much of this is their usual hyperventilation and how much is real, do you think? Tommy, you want to take you want to kick it off? I mean, I feel like the stakes are pretty high, no? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Here's what I'd say. I think I don't know if it's possible for both of these things to be true. I kind of agree that the stakes are impossibly high. However, if we succeed and pass both of these things and fund the government, next week we will be talking about how Joe Biden and the Democrats can still very easily lose Congress and the White House. And if we fail to pass these things, we won't like shut down. <laughs> like, you know, we'll yeah. continue trying to figure out what to do. So like I think the stakes are incredibly high because they will not only set they will set the tenor for the next year and it will determine whether or not we really have a shot of making our best case for the argument I think we've been making for a very long time, which is Democrats have to deliver. That is the only way we can subvert the kind of historic expectations that we will do terribly in the upcoming midterms. Last week in Los Angeles, we had a uh, sunset at like 4 p.m. that was blood red because of the climate fires. <laughs> so for me, that put the stakes up pretty high when it comes to like, will they pass uh, something to meaningfully deal with climate change or will this be our last chance uh, holding a majority for a long time? So that's pretty high stakes. Like the the total disaster scenario is pretty catastrophic, right? It gets the government shut down. The U.S. could default on its debt. The Biden legislative agenda could implode if both of these bills go down. Playbook could be really upset about his lack of leadership. You know what I mean? We don't want to let that happen. So I'm not saying all those things could happen. That's the worst case. Whether it happens this week, I I think, is where it's getting a little amped up, right? Like Pelosi already punted Mm. one of the deadlines from Monday to Thursday. So she's trying to buy some time to get things done. That's not ideal. We don't want to squeeze everything as close to the end of the legislative calendar as we possibly can, but that's what tends to happen here. Tommy, can I just say I'm I'm very happy that when you talked about consequences for not passing this, you talked about real world consequences oh, and didn't. not just purely political consequences. That's all like, I did. Like we're fucking yeah. pundits in a TV box talking I about climate feel like change. This is, feel pundits like this on the radio on your phone. I don't know. I feel like that's what I did. <laughs> there are there are some real world. There are people who I won't have about the blood moon. Child care help. There are people who will yeah. go without health insurance. There's like yeah. And you're right. Like if we do not pass. I, 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 for one, think that the political press is not hyperventilating. I think the stakes are huge. Love it. To your point, I don't think that passing both bills guarantees midterm success, but midterm success will be nearly impossible if they fail. It is, it is a prerequisite for midterm success, even though passing it does not guarantee it. Um, but I think that if we don't pass these, I think, aside from the real world consequences that are, that are terrible, because who knows when we will have a majority again and a chance to pass this again. Um, but I think the political consequences are going to be pretty rough as well. I also agree with you, Tommy, though, that if it doesn't get done this week, it's not the fucking end of the world. The, the government has Minus to get funded. The government, the government has to get funded part, this week, yeah. and the debt ceiling has to get done by mid-October. I think is. Well, they don't know. It's, that's part of the fun of the debt limit. It's a bit of a gamble. Yeah, Janet Yellen's fucking you know juggling coins and stuff. She's trying to. Yeah, I don't know. I like. I don't know who she's, runs she's a bank right, account like that. She's, she's writing IOUs, handing yeah. it to people. This whole thing's a little. Loose. I think I can stretch till Christmas. <laughs> I mean, if it does, if the if the if it does pass this week, then the one piece of good news is that uh, it's the last time we'll hear infrastructure week jokes. 
Mm, uh, mm. You, met, you think that Twitter will Washington. squeeze a, a little more blood from that stone? D- DC is full of uh, people who are unfunny but make the same set of jokes every few months, yeah. unfortunately. The infrastructure vote was uh, initially supposed to be today, Monday. Uh, clearly, Pelosi didn't have the votes. But what, what do you guys think her announcement of a Thursday vote uh, tells you about how she thinks these negotiations will play out? I think it shows that she's trying to figure out what the hell everybody wants. And they're trying to figure out a framework for what the larger Build Back Better bill could look like, cut a deal with progressives on sort of the outlines of what might be in it, because it's not going to be $3.5 trillion, even though Dan won't let us say that. It's going to be smaller than that. So smaller (laughs) how is the big question. Um, And then initially, Pelosi had told the moderate faction that the Gottheimer sort of uh, splinter cell, that they would get a vote on the bipartisan bill today. She had to appease them. Uh, but then punted that to Thursday. So the fact that the moderates aren't mad tells you that they feel comfortable with the state of things and the progressives who are trying to figure like what is going to get cut from this $3.5 trillion vision that are worried. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add too is it's, you know, there's a lot of, it's hard at this point to separate the kind of posturing and negotiations from what their actual positions are internally. And, you know, you've seen People like Manchin say, oh, why would we even do this right now? There's no reason we should push it off. But then everyone is behaving as though there's a real possibility that this this can get done this week. Like if Manchin was signaling privately there was no point in all this, Nancy Pelosi wouldn't be setting this vote. Uh, These negotiations wouldn't be as fierce and contentious and ongoing as they are. And I think you start to see some of the moderates saying things like, uh, why would progressives jeopardize the bipartisan bill? They would never do that. They wouldn't do that to Joe Biden is because they're all trying to create leverage in this moment as they try to get to the point where both bills go at the same time. Yeah. I, the big question here is, can they all reach an agreement on Build Back Better by Thursday? There is currently no paper. There is, I mean, there's only a couple of days here. It, yeah. it seems like a tall order. So then the question is, how much of an agreement do they have to reach to keep the progressives happy enough to vote for the infrastructure bill. On on Sunday, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, who leads the Progressive Caucus, I believe was on one of the Sunday shows. I don't watch them. I just read the news about them. Just um, mad about them online. Yeah, I just, yeah, exactly. And uh, I think she said she wants an ironclad commitment from the centrists before they do anything. But then today she tweeted that the Build Back Better plan needs to pass at the same time, which is seems like a tall order to get done by Thursday. It's not going to happen by Thursday. I just don't think it, I don't it know. Really which reminds means that the of, vote gets postponed again, right? It, just, it reminds me of, um, there was this moment at Camp David where uh, Hood Barak and, and Yasser Arafat were both walking into the negotiating room with Bill Clinton. And there was this moment where like, kind of bravado and um, like manners overlapped and neither one of them wanted to walk through the door first. And so they ended up like physically fighting at the door to stop the other one from getting it first. And finally, Bill Clinton just basically pushed them both through at the same time while laughing. I feel like that's a little well, bit of the vibe right now. To extend your metaphor, I mean, you are seeing a lot of a lot of uh, complaining in the press from moderates and progressives that Joe Biden isn't engaged enough, that he's not twisted arms, that he's not, you know, cajoling members, that he's doing too much listening and not enough pressuring, I guess. Do we think that that's typical carping or is there some truth there? It's typical carping in the sense that it gives me deja vu that they used to say this about Obama all the time. He's too aloof. He's not engaged. Right. Um, but I don't know. Who knows? Usually presidents sort of stand back for reasons, (laughs) like they stay out of this for reasons. And then at the very end, they go in and start twisting arms. So maybe he's just trying to let it all come together. Jayapal also told Greg Sargent that Biden is not pressuring progressives to vote for the infrastructure bill. 
which is the moderates hope that he would do. For the two-bill solution. Yeah, there's also just a bit of, I think, I mean, a lot of, there is just some basic mistrust that I think you see in those comments by Jayapal, which is that, like, commitments can be evaded and talked out of. There's a real fear, I think, correctly on the part of progressives that if they go along with the bipartisan bill, all of a sudden, a bunch of people that claim they would go along with the deal suddenly find reasons that that they can claim don't uh, subvert what they said in the past to prevent this thing. From yeah, happening. I think that's some healthy skepticism. Yeah, that's. And so I, I agree with that. These completely, fuckers. completely. And nothing about the way they've behaved uh, over the past couple of months would argue against that. I mean, Biden, ridiculous. Biden got his uh, booster shot this morning on, on television and was answering questions while getting the booster shot and uh, speaking really fast. <laughs> <laughs> he said he said it may not be by the end of the week. I hope it's by the end of the week. So even he yeah. is imagining that may he's, slip into he's trying to chill out the whole deadline thing. Yeah. One of the huge issues left to resolve is how to pay for Build Back Better. Um, Pelosi and Schumer said on Friday that Democrats have, quote, reached an agreement on a framework, a menu of options that would finance the bill with a combination of tax increases on corporations and people making over $400,000 a year. But the New York Times has reported that Kirsten Cinema is opposed to higher tax rates for both corporations and rich people, which is why Democrats are now exploring a tax on carbon as a way to pay for the bill. Uh, what do you think about that? Love it. Kirsten Cinema is completely vexing. Uh, it just never, I don't understand her philosophy, don't understand what she wants. I also don't totally know if that rendering of her position is accurate. Does she oppose any increases? Does she oppose a specific version of the proposal? Is it a negotiation to try to get a carbon tax in there and defray some of the costs by reducing the amount that they uh, uh, increase taxes on corporations on the rich? It's really not clear. But if the end result is that this leads to a carbon tax as part of this that still honors the Biden pledge for. for not raising taxes on the middle class through some kind of a dividend, like I think that's a really positive outcome. Though I want the tax, I mean, I want, like, obviously I want the highest tax cuts on the the rich. Here's how you would have to do a carbon tax that doesn't hurt people making under $400,000. You tax them just like you tax everyone else, and then you like mail them rebates. That's not going to go over politically well, well, I'll tell you. There's a bunch of different versions of it, right? One version of it is that the the tax increases are not aimed at everybody. But then the understanding that because some of the costs redound to consumers, you do a dividend that applies to people making under $400,000. There's a number of different ways you can do it. The problem is the best version of a carbon tax that doesn't seem to hurt middle class people is not one that helps you pay for other parts of your bill. It's one that just is kind of neutral and the benefits you, flow right, to the That's yeah. Which is something that I've always felt was like... Doesn't get you much. Like if you really believe climate change is this threat, you don't use a carbon tax to pay for other priorities. You demonstrate that a carbon tax is a means of not just protecting the planet, but also like actually making lives better by sending those kind of tax benefits to regular people. Yeah, I think what they have in the plan right now, which is you charge the companies that are polluting and then you reward the companies that are transitioning to clean energy is much better. Um, but also, let's just go back yeah. to the tax, the, the opposition to the tax increases, like increasing the tax rates on the, the wealthiest one or two percent and 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 uh, corporations is like, again, one of the most popular policies that you poll. Raising taxes on corporations polls at 66 percent approval. 61% of the country thinks we should raise taxes on household incomes over $400,000. So you can either- That's 400000 You can care about debts and deficits, or you can care about climate change, or you can care about, I don't, like, tell us what you care about, Kirsten Cinema. But this is, uh, like, this position is indefensibly stupid from a policy and political standpoint. And so what what, what is she doing? 
Uh, also, it's baffling. Try not to overreact to like a statement, bear, like mm-hmm. a, a quote in the 30th graph of a New York Times story that she hasn't confirmed or denied, but it's like, it's baffling. Also, you can't, if you don't increase tax rates on individuals or corporations, you can't pay for $3.5 trillion. Now, can you pay for a $1.5 trillion bill or a $2.0 you probably get around $700 billion from the prescription drug thing, so you're getting closer, but you're closing loopholes and all this bullshit. So maybe you can get there with math. I I doubt it. One other piece of this, too, though, Tommy, is like I agree it's like this weird throwaway line, maybe based on some like kind of larger reporting that's a bit more nuanced. But the Post reported that Mitch McConnell has been privately reassuring, reassuring his allies that cinema will help prevent uh, tax increases on the rich and corporations as well. So there's clearly there's truth to it. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's just sort of a political question of like, do you have, do you want to be able to say this thing was paid for? And what I want to be able to say to voters is, hey, uh, you know those billionaires buying islands and taking vacations and fucking space? We're going to tax them. We're yeah. going to tax them more, and we're going to use that money to pay for things that matter to you. That I think is the winning political argument. Not that we're balancing the budget or we're doing X Y Z. It's like no, right? We're, we're going to tax the billionaires who are you know the, who pay like. Eight percent in taxes because they can rig the system. It's you're, popular in and of itself. It is not. It doesn't need to be popular because it helps you pay for the bill. You're right, Tommy. That it's the winning political message. I think it's also required under the budget rules in <laughs> the budget reconciliation. Like I don't think you can. I think you have to actually show how you pay for this. Um, one thing on cinema over the weekend, the Arizona Democratic Party has uh, pledged a vote of no confidence in cinema if she fails to reform the filibuster or doesn't support Build Back Better. You know. It, there's a lot of this like activists at home aren't happy with cinema stuff that you wonder if it's going to go anywhere. The Arizona Democratic Party doing this is it's sort of a big deal. Again, you know, Mark Kelly, pretty moderate senator from Arizona. He's not fucking everything up. You don't hear Mark Kelly uh, yelling about uh, taxes on the rich tax, increasing taxes on rich people. In, uh, in uh, someday soon, I'm going to be out of uh, the office because I'm going to be at the urgent care center because I will have broken my finger. Uh, hitting the act blue button to donate to her primary opponent. Like, good for the Arizona Democratic Party. I, I, I too am with love. It. I'd like to see a little pressure from the left on Kirsten Sinema. Like, meanwhile, the Arizona Republican Party's taking bong hits with Mike Lindell <laughs> over in the corner. Like, God it's, knows what's what going on doing. out there. So, that state needs some help. Tell us what's going on, Arizona residents. And, and by the way, like, you know, a lot of this gets couched as like, oh, she's trying to create a kind of like independent brand for herself. When you know, some of these policies we're talking about, these are not far left progressive yeah, what policies. brand is this popular yeah. a, a raising taxes on corporations and rich people is like that's independence her, what, what is that. her brand mitch mcconnell is that her brand <laughs> yeah. so i'm not going to tell you that's my brand yeah <laughs> um we've talked a lot about how democratic centrist political concerns about build back better uh fly in the face of poll after poll that show healthy majorities of voters support the overall bill uh but just to be fair we we do want to play one of the ads that the american action network is running as part of their 7.5 million dollar campaign that's targeting 24 of the most vulnerable house democrats let's listen dc liberals overspending it benefits a few while working americans suffer now they're pushing a three trillion dollar socialist spending plan where's the money go pelosi snagged 200 million for a park in san francisco and her rich friends get tax breaks on electric cars with Chinese parts. But Maine's middle class gets stuck with the bill. New taxes and even higher prices. Tell Congressman Golden to vote against Pelosi's spending spree. That's a real uh, paint-by-number Republican attack. <laughs> with Chinese parts. With Chinese with parts. With Chinese parts. What? I didn't like the score. <laughs> Me strings. Okay? You, yeah, you didn't like the music. No, I you know, like listen to Secession and then try to rip that off next time. You know, I think it, 
they've got in there a piece of new information, right? The park, right? You know, it's some line park, item sure. budget somewhere, yeah. right? It's a some, it, they got that, and there's that's going to stick in your mind. They well, got the, the electric vehicles. Uh, this is what the, I what I when I heard that ad though, what I thought when I heard it was like that. Like there are ads that I think are kind of misleading, but like faithful to a core idea of some sort. But when you hear that ad, you just think. You will be vilified and attacked as a Pelosi Democrat who's overspending on Chinese electric car parts, no matter what you fucking do, yeah. no matter what you do. It's all Orwellian. It's like American job creators for a strong economy arguing against a bunch of things that would improve the economy. I mean, I, I do think that I, I don't know if these ads are effective with voters. I do think they're almost always effective when it comes to um, making members of Congress get really scared and, and kind of wet the bed. So, yeah. you know, we should be worried about them. There are ads from the other side. There's two million in cable ads uh, running, calling for paid family and medical leave to be in the bill, right? So there's pressure in both directions. Who knows how it'll shake out? But, you know, this is like a period of really intense lobbying on these members of Congress. I do think to your point about the ads on the other side, I think it's really important for Democrats and Democratic allied groups that are running these ads to pick out individual issues to run ads on, like some of these ads that we've seen on, on our side. There's one on paid family leave, like you said. There's one running in Stephanie Murphy's district from the League of Conservation of Voters about climate and how climate's impacting Florida and why it's important. It really is hard to message on the entirety of the Build Back Better agenda. It is much more effective and easier, I think, to pick out its component parts and talk about them separately. And I think that's probably the best path for Democrats. Yes, I, I also... <laughs> I remember when uh, the stimulus passed and there was this moment where we all said, hey, Democrats in Congress, remember this feeling. Remember the, like, the good tidings that come with like passing big things despite the opposition, despite the claims that it was on a partisan basis. Like, Remember the kind of like uh, overall change in the political climate that kind of overtakes some of these smaller yeah. kind of political attacks and... I hope they do. I hope yeah, they do. Biden's polling numbers went up and then childhood poverty was cut in half. A couple good reasons uh, to want to continue some of these policies we passed. I do get the fear that some of these Democrats must experience when they when they see these ads. You're right, love it, that they're, they're going to attack us no matter what. Now, on some things, you know, back to our uh, the, the 2020 primary, like if you uh, call yourself a socialist, it's going to help when they run ads that says you're a socialist, that say you're a socialist, um, it's probably going to help them a little bit more. So there is an element of that to it. But I think Republicans are going to attack Democrats, House Democrats, on being big spenders no matter what, partly because they all voted for the rescue package. Uh, they're going to have to do the debt limit on their own. We're not going to get any Republican help with the debt limit. So there are going to be real spending things that they're going to be able to attack Democrats for. So whether or not they sink the Build Back Better agenda. So you might as well, as opposed, the answer is not to oppose it. It's to sell it to, to voters. It's to sell your reasons for voting for it. I have no doubt that the, uh, the ad whizzes who came up with the ad we just listened to could go through the bills that have already been passed and create a nearly identical version that makes the exact same argument without having to ever think about the Build Back Better plan. Donald Trump is president. Dumb Republicans are running, putting out press releases, taking credit for provisions in the COVID relief bills that they voted against. Yep. Up is down, down is up. Just you'll be do a, what's right. Yeah, you'll be, a, by the way, and some of those ads will use the bipartisan infrastructure plan to attack you as a Nancy Pelosi big spender, without a doubt. They'll, they'll always find a way. They'll always find they a lie. way. Um, one, there was a CNN op-ed this morning from Pramila Jayapal, uh, Ilhan Omar, and Katie Porter about how progressives are going to put their votes on the lines to, to, to get both the infrastructure and Build Back Better done. They had a line in there that I think is a pretty good message to sort of sum up the overall bill. 
uh, if we allow corporate lobbyists to dictate our legislative agenda, the economic recovery will grind to a halt. I do think it's time for Democrats from the progressives to Biden to the centrists to start talking about special interest standing in the way. Um, and they're and, and we're fighting on behalf of the American people because you can see Republicans in that ad trying to say we're for the middle class. They're for rich people with electric vehicles and the and the Chinese and San Francisco parks. <laughs> what was interesting about that, you know, Pelosi kitchen sink anti-China ad was that it didn't include inflation because that's the one thing you've been hearing from people in D.C. is that voters are really worried about inflation. It's showing up in focus groups and polling. And like, I don't know if that's true or not. I know that I filled up my gas tank yesterday and it was outrageously expensive and I did not like that. Chuck Schumer over here. Yeah. <laughs> I have a press conference. I'm being yeah. gouged <laughs> on the Brea, yeah. But um, but yeah, that wasn't part of that ad. And you'd think like if that was the really like powerful attack, it would be in there. But I agree. Like we passed the Recovery Act in 2009, and then nothing else got done, and it meant the economy stumbled along for years. Um, okay, so I'm sure that'll all get done fine. Everything will be great at Piece the end of, of this week. We'll be uh, we'll be doing a pod next Monday and just cheering the passage of the Build Back Better bill. I think we're going to be legislative purgatory for a long time. Cool, cool, cool. One thing I do notice notice is that a lot of people who like kind of don't like Nancy Pelosi, they don't really know what to say during these periods of time when she's like ferociously trying to figure out how to like make all this happen at the same time. Even if you really dislike her, no one really wants to bet against her. No. I I like the Terry McAuliffe summed it up well. Voters didn't send Democrats to Washington to sit around and chitty chat all day. They need to get this done. Yeah, you're right, Terry. I do think I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I thought it was interesting that and he said that in response to them not passing the infrastructure bill that that Terry yeah. McAuliffe is really hoping they just pass the infrastructure bill, even if it doesn't mean Build Back Better passes right away. That's him probably feeling the pressure of a very competitive race in Virginia. Yes. <laughs> Terry wants to deal with the commuting time in northern Virginia or whatever, like parochial thing is in that bill. Yeah, absolutely. And he just wants to be aligned with the party that's getting stuff done for the economy. Yeah. You know. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. So while Democrats and Republicans in Washington are engaged in a high stakes but relatively normal legislative battle, uh, there's a parallel universe where Donald Trump is putting the pieces in place to make sure his next coup succeeds. You might think that after Arizona Republicans wasted $6 million on their own private election review just to have the cyber ninjas report that Joe Biden won Maricopa County by more votes than we originally thought, MAGA world would at least pump the brakes for a bit. But no. Um, instead, they just pretended that the sham audit proved that there was fraud. Of course, it proved that there was fraud, right? Mm-hmm. The headline was, Biden actually wins more votes in Maricopa County. See, we told you there was fraud. Arizona Republicans called for other counties to be audited after the report came out. Texas, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania Republicans said they're moving forward with their own 2020 audits. Trump himself issued seven separate statements lying about the Arizona results before calling on officials to decertify the election during a rally in Georgia on Saturday night. Here's a clip. We won on the Arizona forensic audit yesterday at a level that you wouldn't believe. The headlines claiming that Biden won. That Biden won are fake news and a very big lie. It is clear in Arizona 
that they must decertify the election. You heard the numbers. We won on a very high level. We won on a very high level. That makes makes a lot of sense. How do you spend $6 million on a sham audit run by a shady firm called the Cyber Ninjas only to have them find more votes for the guy that you're trying to pretend to beat? It's actually kind of confusing, <laughs> to be honest. Like, like, I, like it's not a real audit. These are not real people doing this. They like they took hard drives into the woods and like jerked each other off for six weeks, and they came out making Biden more the winner. I don't really. I'm like actually surprised, to be honest. I was too. <laughs> it's like, what kind I, of, if you had if you had asked me to bet, obviously we're not in the prediction business. If you had asked me to bet before this, would the cyber ninjas find that that Trump actually won? I would say yes, of course. That's the whole reason they're there. And these aren't the people that count the Oscar votes. They should like, get they're their just money. Frauds. They should get their money back. Cyber ninjas sucks at everything. They suck at actually counting votes. They suck at corruption. They yeah, s- and probably ninja stuff. <laughs> <laughs> they can't throw a star to save their life. Yeah. Oh man! Yeah. Can't Cobra use nunchucks. Yeah, they're hitting themselves in the face with these nunchucks. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. It was surprising. You know, yeah. No, no one said that these were smart fascists. No, <laughs> but you don't. But you don't have to be smart to be dangerous, right? I mean, that's the problem, the, like the the Trump will spin anything into an argument that he won, and this audit process has become a long, dragged out PR stunt that created tons and tons of stories that question the legitimacy of the election itself. So, like that, they're they did the job without you know, getting the result they wanted. Yeah, the fact of the audit was the goal of the audit. Yeah. He's lying about the results because the results never really matter. There is no actual outcome here that wouldn't be useful to them because the whole point is to drum up enough uncertainty and questions among the base to sort of set the stage for the next two elections. Yeah, and Trump's already created the context where to get the MAGA base, you have to be all in on the big lie. So the Arizona attorney general who is running for Senate, he knows he has to win that primary. And he said he is going to create some sort of future investigations, do whatever the next iteration is. You're seeing moves in Texas, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Colorado to create sort of similar style audits. So it's spreading. The cancer is spreading. Yeah. And and I'm sure some people are wondering, like, why are they so focused on audits of the 2020 election when we're like almost into the 2022 midterm cycle? Um, It does seem like if you um, make people believe or you make enough people believe that the last election was stolen, it will seem more legitimate to steal the next election. Yeah, it's also you guys um, got you stole one from us. Now we're going to steal one from you. And fair is fair. Also, uh, you know, Trump is a television programmer and 2021 is a programming hole. That's also what it is. And like, this is a great way to like get on stage and fill that programming hole with an interesting story that he can tell in Georgia and Arizona and everywhere else he wants to go. And shitheads like Mitch McConnell can pretend they don't like what's happening in Arizona, but then use the political support it creates to pass uh, voter suppression laws and do other things that make it harder for mostly black Democrats to vote. And it is, you know, uh, it is programming that sets up the theme of the 2024 election, which is revenge, right? That's Trump's theme. That's going to be the theme to the base, the country that his base wants revenge against a couple years of Joe Biden and the Democrats winning. They think it was stolen for them. And so it will drive them into the next election. Um, Conservative columnist Robert Kagan wrote a terrifying Washington Post piece that was getting shared everywhere this weekend. He wrote that, quote, the United States is heading into its greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War with a reasonable chance over the next three to four years of incidents of mass violence. And he argued that the amateurish stop the steal efforts have become an organized national campaign to ensure that Trump and his supporters will have full control over the state and local officials they need to steal a close election. Woodward's new book also has a 2020 memo from Trump campaign lawyer John Eastman that laid out how Trump could overturn the election by getting Republican legislatures to send their own electors to Congress with the help of Mike Pence and Republicans in Congress. Uh, What's your level of alarm about this? Love it. High. 
Uh, I keep it. I keep it pretty high. Keep it pretty high. You know, I I talked to Adam Schiff uh, for Love It or Leave It, and he has this bill around sort of some of the Trump abuses. But I asked him about the Eastman memo, and and I think I think one aspect of it that I think has been sort of lost in the kind of conversation about how dangerous it is is how accurate it is, right? Like I, I you know, I do. You know, Adam Schiff is not saying, oh, that description of how this would unfold is not accurate. I don't think he's saying it's accurate. But I don't. But but basically, like the question is, what would happen if one point of failure in the form of the vice president uh, did what this memo said instead of rebuking it? Uh, it is not clear that what he has outlined in the remainder of those steps would not have transpired. It is not clear that the courts would step in. The point about the courts not wanting to litigate a kind of political question like this is not uh, uh, a crazy one. The reason that we were okay in 2020, um, the Mike Pence thing we can argue back and forth, but Nancy Pelosi was the Speaker of the House. Kevin McCarthy is the Speaker of the House. Um, And if the Republican, if the Senate is in Republican hands, um, it is, there is a very easy path to steal the next election. A very easy path because of the, you know, Electoral Count Act of 18, whatever the fuck it was, (laughs) that lets all this happen. And I think... It is shocking to me that we have not had legislation proposed that would amend that act to say that you that Congress basically does have a ceremonial role or that if Congress really thinks that there are problems in some of the states, it would take like a super majority in both houses to go back to the states and have them get new electors or whatever it is, because that would take it out of the partisan realm. Like I, I, I'm, I would love for someone to tell me why this hasn't happened yet. Well, there's two bills, right? There's the Preventing Election Subversion Act, and then there's the Right to Vote Act that are supposed to get at some of these election subversion issues that weren't in the original HR1 or S1, which were introduced in 2019, because we weren't really worried about this stuff yet. Yeah. So, I mean, but I mean, the Kagan's op-ed gets to the point at the end that basically says like, look, Mitt Romney and some of these other Republicans did a noble thing by voting for impeachment or standing up to the big lie, et cetera, et cetera. But now they got to put their money where their mouth is, work with Democrats to pass bills that would make it impossible for these state legislatures to basically steer, steal elections for states, name their own slate of, of uh, delegates, et cetera, et cetera, like all the things in that Eastman memo. So we haven't talked about this much, but the new H.R. 1 is called the Freedom to Vote Act. That's the mansion-led yep. compromise. That has a few provisions in it that would help with election subversion that we haven't seen before. Um, it would allow election officials to bring lawsuits challenging their removal if it's for reasons other than gross negligence, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. So that's pretty good that it, it, it gives some level of protection to, to people who might get canned. But that doesn't help much with if like uh, Trumpy people become secretary of state and then have power over the election apparatus. Uh, It also expands records of what must be preserved after elections, more penalties for tampering with ballots and not preserving records. Um, So it it helps a little bit. But again, like you said, Tommy, it's not going to not going to help much if either either Manchin and Senate have to get rid of the filibuster or Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and some of these Republicans who said they won't help on election reform at all or voting rights reform at all have to fucking put their money where their mouth is there, you know, and actually do something about this. Yeah, I, I would just say I do think everybody should just read the Kagan piece in full. I was actually like surprised by how honest it was about what has taken place inside of Republican politics. Like there was one one aspect of all of this that I think sometimes, especially kind of anti-Trump conservatives allied is outside of the kind of 
political calculus. There's this, this is what Kagan writes. Perhaps American conservatism was never comfortable with the American experiment in liberal democracy, but certainly since Trump took over their party, many conservatives have revealed a hostility to core American beliefs. And so much of what we're talking about is that problem. And we still are not reckoning with that problem. He is clearly avoiding the word that we are now more comfortable to use, which is we're talking about fascism. That fascism has taken hold uh, in the Republican Party. It is a huge motivating uh, uh, aspect of why they support Trump, why they're anti-democracy, uh, why they storm the Capitol. And it is hard to grapple with that because it is something you can't grapple with inside of our political process. It is something outside of our political process, threatening it every single day. Um, and uh, I think that makes people like Mitt Romney Susan Collins, Murkowski, it makes them very uncomfortable. Uh, actually facing it, they are very uncomfortable. The other scary thing is just that, you know, the, the attack on the Capitol, you know, there's a lot of talk about the three percenters and the Oath Keepers and these like scary militia groups that were part of that attack. But 90% of the people arrested or charged were not part of those groups. They were middle-aged, yeah. middle-class, schlubby white people from purple counties who got caught up in this big lie. I mean, propaganda works, demagogues are powerful. Like that's what we've seen. And fascist movements in the past have included those very people. Um, so, you know, one option here to to protect our democracy and our elections is there's a there's a policy option. There's passing these Freedom to Vote Act and other election subversion provisions. Um, there's also sort of a political cultural path here, which is just raising the alarm about this, talking more about it, Democrats talking more about it, everyone yelling more about it. We are the news is completely consumed with, as news usually is, what Joe Biden's doing and what his administration is doing, and what the fights in Congress are. But it is very frightening that there is this sort of parallel reality. You know, the right wing media universe is covering it all the time where Trump and all of his henchmen are, are putting in place the pieces. And it does seem like everyone else is just sitting around doing nothing, <laughs> yelling about it once in a while, being scared, sharing a Washington Post op-ed. Like one place I wonder is we got these one six hearings, right? We got the subpoenas out for the for the one six hearings now. Uh, the Biden administration is, is making a decision on whether they uh, waive executive privilege to make sure a bunch of documents come out about uh, Trump. I do wonder if the the real purpose of the one six hearings in Democrats' mind should be to um, tell the story of an ongoing threat to democracy from Trump and his supporters, and and not just look backwards. You know? Yeah, I was not thrilled to see that there's a big fight over executive privilege in the White House, withholding documents, you know, on a case by case basis, out of concern that it might create some precedent that would. Who cares? You know, <laughs> it's an unprecedented moment in our history. The Capitol was stormed. I am uh, the beneficiary of executive privilege and the fact that White House records aren't routinely released. All kinds of privilege, actually. <laughs> All kinds of privilege. <laughs> but um, but uh, like in this instance, like I do think like the you, White Houses often end up turning over documents uh, in extreme cases like this, like the Benghazi committee, whatever it might be. Of course, they should be turning over records about Donald Trump's activities those days or, or like what senior aides did. I know that I saw that they subpoenaed a few people. They subpoenaed uh, people who were around Trump that day and had a part, maybe had a role in, you know, decisions he did or did not make about tweeting to tell his uh, supporters to calm down or whatnot. But I do think I hope the Biden White House will just not let lawyers bog this down and kind of use common sense here. I mean, we got to a point briefly in January where uh, Donald Trump was so toxic that even Mitch McConnell was telling, you know, was was criticizing him publicly. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, we got 
nine, 10 Republicans in the House and Senate voting for his impeachment. Like we need to get back to that place where Donald Trump and 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 his henchmen are once again so toxic to democracy that, um, you know, that, that we prevent this outcome that we can all see coming. Yeah. I mean, one one thing I was thinking about, which is, you know, something that happened after the insurrection and because H.R. 1 was kind of there as this stalking horse for our democracy agenda is I think sometimes in our political conversation, we have combined electoral suppression and electoral subversion into kind of one soup of anti-democratic policies. And I do wonder, and like, I'm sure people would argue against this, but I do wonder, like, what does it look like for for democratic politicians to really view the electoral subversion threat as the key threat to the future of the country? What does that look like? And what it looks like is stripping out anything else and focusing on a bill that is exclusively about that. Now, I think like Manchin and uh, Klobuchar have stripped out some of the other provisions to kind of make a more targeted bill. Um, but it does seem like there's some kind of a debate to be had with the the Romneys and the Toomeys and the Collinses and the Murkowskis to say, what is it that you want to do to protect our democracy that you're comfortable with? And how can we get you to come aboard when there's still such a strong uh, uh, desire on their part to not to be anti-Trump while still kind of being Republicans in one way or another. Like, yeah. I, and I, that doesn't seem to be happening. And it seems like it should be happening. I also think like the names of every official, every Trumpy official who embraces the big lie at, that are election officials, state officials, local officials needs to be known by everyone. They need to be highlighted. People need to understand the threat. Like it just, it, we should be talking about it more. And I think the other question too is how much do Democrats make this part of their midterm message? We've had this long running discussion about whether you talk about all the good stuff that Democrats have delivered and Joe Biden sort of getting the country out of the pandemic and bring the economy back or talking about Republicans and the threat from the growing fascism within the party. And I do think that whether it's politically effective or not, it's the truth. So I think that we probably has to be part of the message. The good news part is a little TBD too. So, you know, we don't really have that. It's been, unfortunately a false choice at the moment. But yeah, you know, good news, TK. <laughs> good news, TK. But what the, you know, the the, the odd thing is um, that support for the big lie is a litmus test in all Republican primaries. That litmus test gets more and more extreme by the day because now you have Eric Greitens in Missouri, Josh Mandel, that schlubby putts in Ohio running against J.D. Vance, um, calling for election reviews of the 2020 results. So they're they're sprinting to the more extreme end of this conversation. And I do think it's worthwhile to highlight them. The problem is we highlight the Josh Mandels and Eric Greitens of the world right now to our peril because it will help them in their Republican primary. So like, it's kind of like a sequencing. Well, there is some evidence that this could be a politically effective issue for Democrats as opposed to just the, the right one to, to talk I about. I think it could be too. Which Glenn Youngkin in Virginia um, just told Axios uh, that he, he wouldn't say whether he would have voted to overturn the election because he knows that this is an issue that doesn't just... Um, that isn't, you know, doesn't just unite Democrats and independents, but it splits the Republican base. Now, there's probably like 60 percent of Republicans who are like, yeah, we should vote to overturn the election. It was stolen, blah, blah, blah. But that's still he, he needs the whole Republican base to win Virginia. And so I do think like I am imagining that in the next debate between McAuliffe and Youngkin, McAuliffe's going to go up there and be like, you wouldn't answer the question. Would you have voted to totally. overturn the election and pin him on it? Because Trump, by the way, gave an interview 
uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago where he's like, I don't know about the, yeah, Youngkin, uh, he seems like he's running away from me. I don't know about this. And that'll work great in Virginia. It's just a question of whether it works in Ohio or Missouri. Oh, no. Or well, those well, are... Yeah, I mean, there has to be the hope, right, based on 2018 that, like, basically what we're talking about is making people seem radical and nutty. Like, that's sort of what we're trying to, to sort of signal to the kind of suburban moderates that help de- deliver districts that otherwise we would have lost. I either, think... either seem radical and nutty themselves or if you want to just be honest about it, embracing a radical and nutty agenda in order to win. Now, e- I, either way. Absolutely. And I, and, and, I, and I think at this point, I don't care about the difference at all. We don't, no, we but, don't certainly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I do think also there is actually a connection between the kind of economic and policy argument and the democratic argument, right? I don't know if this is good politics or the right way to square the circle, but just in reality, they're so uninterested in helping you. They are so uninterested in the reality of your life. They are so uninterested in doing things that are good for the broad uh, uh, middle of this country that they're willing to subvert democracy so that they continue to focus tax breaks and benefits and deregulation on a wealthy and mostly white few. Right. Like that is the right reality on the of this. Sticker. I think but you, it, just, you just run a six me into a DLC message from the 90s. <laughs> Look, you need some constructive feedback. No, I don't. <laughs> just, I, I don't. It's on the bumper sticker. It's on a T-shirt. You two can both suck a dick. Put that on a bumper sticker. That fits. That fits. That That's really, actually that catchy. Fits. Yeah, it's ca- catchy. SD twenty twenty two. I'm really sorry, everybody. That's okay. I just felt so attacked. I also sit between them. It's a sandwich, but not in a good way. Oh god. I, Here's the thing. Here's the thing. To an ad I have a uh, I have a trump card that I can play at any time, which is to make my boys uncomfortable uh, by subverting their heteronormative expectations. Yeah, he's, he's subverted. Just, just try it. Just try it. I um. I do think you're right, though, that you need to combine both of those messages. Yes. I don't think there. I don't, I don't think you can choose at the end. I think you need to. Find oh, so you a way agree to, with me, even though you kind of like kind of like did look a little dick. No, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna workshop the actual message in private off microphone, and then I can bring Why? it back later. That's our shtick. <laughs> Why? When we come, people back, don't pay for this. People. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to hear more, though, <laughs> there's gonna be an extra message session behind a paywall. Six ninety nine. <laughs> I don't hate that. I don't hate that. Ever just launched the masterclass yeah, competitor hey, on that? Now that we're brainstorming on air, there you go. Okay, when we come back, uh, Tommy talks to Washington Post journalist Jason Rezaian about the brand new podcast launching tomorrow on Spotify. Five hundred and forty four days. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. I am so excited to welcome back to the pod, Jason Resign. Jason, it's so great to see you again. Tommy, it is great to be here. I'm, uh, you know, talking to you from my um, my basement bunker. My my little 11 month old is screaming uh, somewhere upstairs, and you know, <laughs> and here we are, you know, again after 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 a long time. A lot has changed. A lot feels the same. Uh, I'm in the same place you are. Uh, so we are here to talk about your incredible new podcast, 544 Days. Uh, it is hosted by you. It is written by you and produced by Gimlet, Crooked Media, and A24. So uh, some decent uh, production companies there. It's the story of the 544 days you spent in the notorious 
hellish in prison in Iran after they wrongly accused you of being an American spy. Your wife, Yegi, was also taken prisoner. The story is about your detention, the massive effort by the U.S. government, your family, your colleagues at the Washington Post to get you out. Oh, and by the way, Barack Obama was uh, cutting a nuclear deal with Iran at the same time. So you know, not at all complicated. There's not a lot of moving pieces there. Um, so just for listeners who might not be familiar with your story, can we just start with the basics of why the Iranians arrested you in the first place? Yeah, so I, I was the, the Tehran bureau chief for the Washington Post uh, in the summer of 2014. I've been living in Tehran uh, since 2009, working as a, as a reporter for international media uh, you know, freelancing really for, for several years until I was hired by the Post in 2012. Um, and at that time, when I was hired, I really thought that this um, relationship with one of the, the main newspapers of the world, the, the paper of record of, of the U.S. Capitol, I thought that gave me some cover, mm-hmm. right, some protective cover. Um, and as the uh, nuclear negotiations started heating up in 2013 and 2014, one thing that nobody really factored in was that there were actors within the Iranian regime that did not want to see uh, any kind of rapprochement between Iran and the West and Iran and the U.S. specifically. So when I was taken in July of 2014, it was right at the height of those negotiations. Uh, the time frame for coming to a deal, the deadline had been ex- extended by several months. And I think anybody who was following this closely believed that um, that the deal was kind of a, a fait accompli. I mean, it was going to happen one way or the other. Uh, and as you know, um, from being here in, in Washington at that time, there were a lot of opponents in the U.S. against diplomacy with Iran and that deal in particular. Inside Iran, there were opponents as well. And the main opponent was the the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, And agents of their intelligence wing um, raided my home uh, and abducted my wife and I um, very suddenly without any kind of warning and took us to Evan Prison, where we really had no idea what we were being accused of. I mean, they said, okay, you're a spy. Uh, they put us in interrogation rooms for weeks on end. And during that time, they asked us all manner of, manner of questions, which showed very clearly they had absolutely no evidence that we were doing anything wrong. You yeah. know, I was just a reporter working with with state permission in that country um, who was was kind of rounded up as 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 bait. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're very clear when you talk about the experience. I mean, being put in solitary confinement for that long being interrogated under those those conditions, it is torture. But what is surprising about this show and this podcast and like just you generally is how funny the show is. Uh, You, Yegi, your wife, your mom, your brother, like you are all able to somehow look back and laugh at this experience. You guys make fun of your tormentors. Uh, Is that something you figure out how to do after the fact or did you keep your sense of humor in prison? That's me, right? I mean, you know, that's how I've walked through life so far. Um, I've tried to uh, look at the lighter side of every situation I've ever been subjected to. You know, my my dad, who um, who who died um, uh, ten years ago, uh, he used to say, uh, "If you worry, you're going to die, and if you don't worry, you're going to die." Right. <laughs> so don't worry. And I've tried to kind of 
you know, incorporate that mantra into as many um, moments of my life as I could. Obviously, this was a very extreme one, right? Um, and I had no way of knowing if and when I would get out, but I had to assume that I was going to survive this thing somehow. And, um, and you know, you get to a certain point after several days when you realize, okay, am I going to be a friend to myself or am I going to be um, my enemy? Because I'm in solitary confinement. There ain't anybody else around, right? So you look for things to laugh at. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you look for uh, memories, you plan for the future, conversations you had, and you can very easily go down very dangerous mental rabbit holes if you let yourself. Mm-hmm. I chose not to let myself. And part of that, a big part of that, was finding things to laugh at. And as my my world in prison opened up a little bit, more interactions with my interrogator and getting to know my guards, uh, and then after time having a cellmate, um, I just found endless things to, to poke fun at. Because ultimately, this was really the most absurd thing that had ever happened uh, to me. And I really wanted to pull out that absurdity in retelling this story. Yeah. Is it traumatic? Do I still have, you know, emotional and psychological scars? Fuck yes. Uh, am I going to let that stop me from laughing at it? I better not cuz then I'm really screwed. Yeah, yeah. Um and so w- while you're in in prison there is this government effort to try to negotiate your release. Uh, at the same time, there are ongoing negotiations over, you know, what will eventually become the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear agreement. Uh, what's amazing in this podcast is you interviewed all these people about the process of negotiating your release, negotiating the JCPOA, and you talked to them during the Trump administration when they were out of government, when they were willing to let their hair down and like speak freely and not be like, you know, the talking point robots that we all turn into when we go back in. And now a bunch of them. John Kerry, John Finer, the Deputy National Security Advisor, are all back in government. Like, what are what are people going to hear from those individuals that might surprise them? Look, I mean, I think that you know we we always mm, think of people in government as um, you know superhuman or subhuman, but definitely not human, <laughs> right? right. Uh, and I, I think when 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 you hear these people. Uh, you're going to realize that they are in so many ways dealing with issues in the same ways that anybody else would. They're just people tasked with a job, a huge job. Um, and I think that that the the sort of impossible challenge of weighing um, massive geopolitical issues against the concerns of a single family, it's something the government has to deal with all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not necessarily always really graceful about it publicly or privately. Yeah. Um, but I think we really see into that here. And and for me, you know, I've had the opportunity over the last five years to get to know a lot of, of these people um, and also people in the Trump administration, specifically around the, the issue of, of hostage taking and hostage recovery. There's a level of trust and intimacy that I've been able to 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 build up with these folks, um, but as you say, I mean, you know, they can't really let their hair down right now. They have a lot of other things to deal with. I'm, you know, of the the eight or nine high level officials uh, that we we interviewed for the show, 
Uh, ben would probably be the only one that would be willing to talk to me right now right. Uh, for this subject. And I know that because, you know, I continue to report on hostage cases um, and I can't get any of these folks on the record at this point. So, you know, that that's no knock on them. That's just kind of the 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 nature um, of how things work here in Washington. But I would say there's a level of intimacy to this show that you almost never get when you put uh, somebody in government alongside with somebody who, who who was affected by the policies that they're tasked with implementing. I mean, look, it's not all government dorks in the show. Your your wife, uh, Yagi, is, is interviewed a lot and is hilarious. Your mom, your brother. Also, Anthony Bourdain uh, has, a, has a big piece of the show. Can you, can you tell people how Anthony Bourdain became part of the story? Because, you know, for me, listening to that trailer and hearing his voice again, someone who I... I followed and listened to and revered in some ways it was you know it was both jarring and also so wonderful to like hear the guy's voice again yeah so when 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 we were arrested in 2014 six weeks earlier we had been asked to appear um on parts unknown when he was in tehran we spent an afternoon with him and it was you know it was a really lovely experience all the way around um and then when we were were arrested you know, invariably, someone's going to start thinking, okay, it must have something to do with, you know, w- with being on that show, right? There's a lot of people who thought it had something to do with them and mm-hmm. didn't have anything to do with any, anybody. But, but Bourdain was somebody who really, um, from the get-go, was full-throated in his advocacy for, for our release. And that never stopped. It kept going. And a couple of weeks after we got out, we had the opportunity to to meet up with him in New York. Um, we had a, a, a meal and, and, and some beers and, and talked a lot. And Bourdain just gave Yegi and I incredible life advice. And from that moment until, um, until he died, he, he was somebody who was very much in our corner, very supportive of us. And ultimately when I, when I proposed, um, uh, a memoir and, you know, wrote up the proposal and we took it to publishers. Um, we, you know, we had sort of one of these mini bidding wars where half a dozen different publishers wanted to publish the book. He reached out to me and said, Hey, Jason, you know, uh, whether you choose me or not, just give it some consideration. I'd like to to publish your book on, uh, on my imprint. It's such an important story to me. And I want you to tell it how you want to tell it. And by the way, you know, he ended up uh, bumping up the um, the the fee that he was willing to pay the the book advance. Uh, you know, above and beyond any other publisher, just to seal the deal. So it's just like, you know, when when we made the decision, Yegi really you know kind of looked me in the eye and was like, Jason, were you ever even considering doing this with anybody else? And the answer was no. Right? I mean, this guy uh, believed in us, and we believed in him. So, you know, that's how that happened. And as part of uh, reporting uh, out my story for the book, I spent an afternoon with him at, at his condo in, in Manhattan. Um, we had some beers and turned on the microphone and, and just kind of recorded a conversation. And I think, you know, magically, it really fits into the story that we're telling here. Yeah. I mean, it's weird to miss someone I've never met, but I, I do. Uh, Mike Pompeo my favorite former uh, secretary of state, failed secretary of state, 
uh, still likes to demagogue your release from Iran, still likes to rant about pallets of cash going from the U.S. to Iran. Can you explain for listeners once and for all what actually happened with the pallets of cash and how it makes you feel to have Mike Pompeo out there peddling this fable years and years later? Well, I don't want to give away too much because I think it's a pretty powerful part of um, you know the the climax of our story. Yeah. Uh, but I think that what I will say is that it was not a ransom payment, um, and we uh, debunk that pretty well. Uh, I think in 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 the description of it in the show, uh, told from the people who were involved in deciding on whether or not uh, the U.S. should pay uh, what was essentially an old debt to Iran that uh, nobody disputed. We knew we needed to pay that back to them. Uh, It was just a a matter of how we were going to pay it back. Uh, Very quickly after my release, um, you know, some some members of uh, Congress uh, from the Republican Party decided to seize on this as uh, a political talking point. And, you know, it has stuck to the extent that uh, Pompeo was on um, on Fox uh, over the weekend, and he said that uh, that the U.S. had sent 150 billion dollars uh, to Iran, uh, and that it was Brett McGurk who uh, who sent this money to <laughs> Iran. Well, uh, it, it just it, it boggles the mind. Uh, I was glad to see that the you know the fact checker um, section of the Washington Post wrote a fact another fact check article about this. They call the, the, the $150 billion claim a zombie claim, uh, which is basically, you know, uh, a, a, a piece of misinformation that has been debunked so many times, but continues to rise into the, the culture. It bothers me. It bothers me less and less, but um, I think it's a really uh, useful thing in terms of, um, you know, people might ask, why are we talking about Jason Rosian and his imprisonment five years after he was released? Um, why are we making a show about this? Well, I don't know, but fucking Mike Pompeo still cares about it, apparently. <laughs> yeah. like, he's he got his butt all bunched up over this. Still. Yeah, he talks about it all the time. All the time. All the time. Uh, so 544 days. You can only listen to it on Spotify. Do not complain to me because it's free. You can get it for free on Spotify. The episodes are out September 28th. You can listen to three of them right away. So you can do like a little mini binge, whet your appetite, then we cut you off for a week, then you get more and more and more. But Jason, congratulations, man. Uh, it's just an amazing show. I'm lucky enough to have heard uh, early versions. It, but it's not just the show. I mean, the music is amazing. The sound design is incredible. Like it's an all-star team. I, I'm I'm so thankful that we were able to do this, and I'm excited to to get it out into the world and and just you know keep talking about these issues, about this story, about Iran, about America, um, and I'm I'm hoping we can do more. Thanks to Jason for joining us. Um, we'll talk to you guys on Thursday. You bet. Maybe. Six ninety nine, seven ninety nine, seven. What's the price point? Yeah, gonna, we'll talk about it. Get it, get 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 it, get let's our get a meeting, get, <laughs> get the business minds revved I didn't up. I think it was so DLC. It was about anti the DLC, the DLC oh, version oh, of the. the do you want to create? It was uh, the DLC thing that hurt him the most. It did hurt me the most. I didn't think that I was doing that. The Good DLC job, version Tommy. of that Good is job. we need, uh, you know, the middle class is the middle of our priorities. Uh, we need to build a bridge to the twenty first century. Isn't that a Hillary speech? 
Didn't you write that? <laughs> Getting absolutely crushed today. <laughs> what was the that terrible one, Obama that one? That one got Elijah and Kyle win, laughing. Win the future. That was uh, win the, the future. Special. Win yeah. the future. Which, which I was using everything oldest. For some again. reason, I was reading Dan's blog for when uh, Obama released his long form birth certificate. When we really shut that guy Trump up for good, <laughs> and uh, it concludes with Dan saying "Win the future" in it, and it made me so sad. Oh, it's Dan. just so forced. It wasn't That's Dan's tough. fault. Everyone Dan, agree Dan on can respond on Thursday's pod. Yeah, Dan. Listen to the end. See if you did. No soup from Bob Woodward, but yeah, plenty no of when the you, future Dan. comments. Bob Woodward. You really railroaded Belushi. Look <laughs> it up. Follow the money. Woodward's not as good as people think. Off the rails. Off the rails. It's are real. we still recording? People yeah, leave this right in. Now? Leave this in. As long as there's music, of, it's fine. Are any of you here? <laughs> <laughs> They've all switched over to Ezra's podcast. <laughs> I need something smart. Too soon. <laughs> I, gotta, I, gotta get, I gotta have something more sophisticated. Get me Ezra. Get me Ezra. I want to know. <laughs> Do we need money? <laughs> love, love it. I love Ezra Klein's podcast. Own meat. I love Ezra Klein's podcast. For the record, leave all this in. Now it's over. I, I, I left. I left the studio ten minutes ago. <laughs> Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Flavia Casas, and our associate producer is Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papadimitrio, Caroline Rustin, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, Yale Freed, and Narmel Konian, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware.